0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome and thank you for joining us today in this podcast. In this episode, we are going to be talking about two books published by the Central European University Press, not just in paper format, but also in open access. It can be downloaded from the website of the CU Press on the Russia-Ukraine war and its structural consequences. The first volume is dedicated to Ukraine, and it's entitled Ukraine's Patronal Democracy and the Russian Invasion. And the second one is dedicated to Russia and the geopolitical scene, and it is entitled Russia's Imperial Endeavor and its geopolitical consequences. The Two volumes are edited by two people, one of them being myself. I am Balint Modlovic, political scientist and economist, and I'm a research fellow of the CEU Democracy Institute. And I have my co-editor with me, Balint Magyar, who is also a researcher here at the CEU Democracy Institute. Welcome, Balint. Thank you for coming. We are very lucky today because we have three of our authors as well. Mikhail Minakov, Oksana Hus, and uh, Kama Mijay. Thank you for, for coming. Can you say a few words about yourself? And I would like to first, turn to Oksana and Mikhail, because they represent one of the key traits of these two volumes, namely that we try to involve many Ukrainian authors. So the two books together have over 30 contributors and from various countries, but the majority of them are Ukrainians. And some of them still working in Ukraine, others working in other countries, but all of them having a deep understanding of their own country and very authentic understanding of the problems that the country faces, as it has faced in the last three decades, actually. And they have some answers as to how this could be solved and what should be done, especially after the war and how the war changes the the, land, the Ukrainian landscape and political economic system. So in this light, Oksana, can you please tell us a few words about yourself
2: and your research? Sure. Thanks a lot for uh, inviting me and for uh, making these volumes uh, real and happen. Yeah, so I'm originally from Ukraine, from Zakarpatia or Transcarpatia. I studied international relations in Uzhhorod, and then I moved to Germany. There I studied uh, political science, law and anthropology at Ludwig Maximilian's University in Munich. And I worked on corruption in Ukraine for 10 years. Meanwhile, I did my uh, PhD. Dedicated to this topic, and currently I am an associated researcher with the BTECT project. This is at the Bologna University, where we are looking at um, social movements and how social movements against corruption use and create technologies to counteract corruption. And I'm responsible there for Estonia and Ukraine.
1: All right, thank you. And you also wrote a book about anti-corruption movements, right? So, or rather, anti-corruption in Ukraine, and uh, that's that's how that's how you got involved in this project, right?
2: Exactly. So that was uh, the result of my PhD.
1: Oh yes. Okay. Now, Mikhail, same question to you. So, a few words.
4: Hello, everybody. Uh, thank you for inviting me to talk. My name is Mikhail Minakov, and I'm a philosopher and political scholar. I study. Among many other topics, democracy, autocracy and oligarchy, so how we organize ourselves in power networks and what kind of them, what kind of these networks we actually fulfill in post-Soviet condition. And of course, issues of corruption or patronalism is among my interests. I work as a principal investigator and senior advisor on Ukraine at Wilson Center's Canon Institute, and I'm currently a visiting scholar, visiting fellow at IWM, Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna.
1: Thank you. Now I will turn to our non-Ukrainian author, who is Kaman Mijay. So Kaman, please, t- can you tell us a few words about yourself?
0: Thank you, Balint, and uh, indeed, thank you for the invitation my uh, association with Ukraine is really from the uh, from the time of uh, the disintegration of the Soviet Union I guess most importantly for the purpose of this conversation I um, I was the founding uh, head of the European Union advisory mission for civilian security sector reform in Ukraine from 2014 and since then I have been uh, very intensely dealing with Ukraine even outside of that job particularly particularly with the rule of law uh, issues, which I regard as the core issue of uh, systemic reform in Ukraine. Besides that, I also deal very intensely with Moldova. My chapter in this book is about Moldova and uh, or Ukraine and Moldova. And I was also UNDP's regional director for Europe and the CIS countries back in
1: 2001-2006. Thank you. Thank you. And finally, I turn to my co-editor, Balint Magyar. I would like to ask you, well, first of all, to say a few words about yourself, but also, can you tell something about our general project? So how do we come to, to Ukraine at all? Because we are two Hungarian scholars, so we are sitting here in Budapest at the CU Democracy Institute. So what do we do with Ukraine?
3: Thank you, Balint. I am Balint Magyar, My professional sociologist. Before the regime changed, I worked at different research institutes in Hungary. At the same time, being an activist of the anti-communist dissident movement. Since the regime changed as one of the founders of the Liberal Party in Hungary, I spent 20 years in the parliament as an MP and altogether in two periods, uh, six and a half years as a minister of education. After 2010, I am again a sociologist dealing with the nature of uh, post-communist regimes. Uh, first, I concentrated mainly on in Hungary, and uh, I defined the regime which had an autocratic breakthrough uh, after autocratic attempt in Hungary in 2010, as Orbán Viktor's uh, party, the Fidesz, got a supermajority in the parliament, and this was the so-called autocratic breakthrough and started the consolidation phase of this autocratization in Hungary. I defined the regime as a post-communist mafia state. But of course, this type of categorization had a lot of to do with that, that uh, we were not too much content with the Mainstream politology, which try to understand the functioning character of uh, post-communist regimes, all these mainstream approaches, uh, especially in the first decade after the regime change, were built on. And- those illusions that there will be a linear progress towards liberal democracies after the regime changes, and that uh, any type of regimes can be built on any kind of ruins of communist dictatorship. This uh, decade was characterized mainly by the literature of transitology, but at that time we had to face the problem that uh, most of these post-communist regimes stuck somewhere between the positions of a liberal democracy and autocracies. The problem was that the mainstream politology was, on one hand, concentrating only on the political institutions when they try to understand the functioning of these regimes. And the other problem is that they use the vocabulary of the liberal democracies, which was used to describe the institutions and processes for liberal democracies. But after 10 years, this is why they turned into a kind of literature of hybridology, which at the same time had three hidden axioms to which they, they were not aware that they accepted. So we had to dissolve these axioms that we could really understand and develop a new language for the description of these regimes. The first such axiom was that the separation of spheres of social actions, the political sphere, the economic sphere, and the communal sphere is completed, and the relation between them is formalized and transparent. What we are going from west to the east, it's less and less that's true, this assumption, and especially it was not true during the communist times when these spheres of social action practically were not simply uh, coinciding with each other but uh, or colluding with each other, but practically merged. The second such axiom is that, that the position of persons and institutions coincide per definition with their de facto position. If we are thinking, let us say, about entrepreneurs in liberal democracies, we assume that they dispose over their property freely. And uh, while we are going to an Eastern European countries, we see that uh, we are speaking about oligarchs, Then we see that, uh, of course, it's separated and some of the oligarchs are just uh, stooges or frontmen of other persons in politics or other other oligarchs. So the euro position of persons as institutions in these regimes do not coincide necessarily with their de facto positions. And the third such assumption what we had to abandon, that the state is an actor pursuing common good per definitionem, and Either public policy mistakes or corruption cases are not system constituting elements but simple deviances of these regimes. And if we just dissolve these uh, axioms, then we had. Have- to get rid of that type of approach for post-communist regimes, which should position these regimes on an axis between democracies and autocracies, the democracies and dictatorships, and to somehow double those categories of democracies, autocracies, and dictatorships. and such a way, we got to the conclusion that the main defining element of these regimes can be informality and a special form of informality, which is a hierarchical form to so patron-client relations. What these patron client relations mean in these societies? Namely, that the decision-making is taken out from formal institutions into informal one. The regulations bringing laws and decrees from normative character, they are going into a type of discretional character. Those who bring these decisions, they are not definitely collective corporate bodies, but much more personal, personal character. And dependence chains are not bureaucratic or institutional in these regimes, but clientelist personal one such a way we made a difference between within democracies between liberal democracies and patronal democracies, when patronal democracy meant that under the cover of formal political parties, practically patron-client networks are competing with each other without the possibility that any of them could subjugate the others or liquidate the others and having a monopolistic power. While in the case of autocracies, we made difference between conservative bureaucratic autocracy and patron autocracy, which meant that in the case of patronal autocracy, such a patron-client network created a single-pyramid patronal network, adopting, subjugating, or liquidating the rival patron-client networks. And when I started to investigate the Hungarian situation after 2010, the after the autocratic breakthrough, I could realize that Hungary became became a kind of patron autocracy, a mafia state. When I'm speaking about a mafia state, it means that it practically clan state and a neopatrimonial state, a predatory state and a criminal state, and if these four characteristics are, are characteristic for a regime, then I could call them, in the case of post-communist regimes, post-communist mafia states.
1: But we should add at this point that uh, when we're speaking about Ukraine, and let's speak about Ukraine, we do not describe it as a mafia state. which we, that That is a term that we use for Russia and for countries that have a patronal autocracy. So we have this differentiation between patronal democracy and patronal autocracy. In the latter, there is a single pyramid network without pluralism, and there this kind of mafia state can develop. In a case of a patronal democracy, there is pluralism. There are numerous networks, and none of them have such control over the whole state that it could be described as a, that it could be described as a mafia state. So, speaking about Ukraine, can you tell us what we what we call regime cycles? So basically, we have this idea that although in the mainstream, when the regime changes happened, there was this assumption that these countries would go towards liberal democracy, we actually see in the case of Ukraine that it never became a liberal democracy, but it became a patronal democracy. And it, and it uh, shows some interesting dynamics. So can you tell us about that, about regime cycles?
3: The inherent characteristic of patronal democracy is that any of these patron-client networks has executive power, then they try to expand their power towards, and they start to move towards uh, patron autocracies. There are two main institutional constraints which hampers such a move from a patron democracy towards a, into a patron autocracy. One is the proportionate election system, which which makes it very impossible that. A single political force could gain supermajority in the parliament in such a way alone changing the constitution, uh, changing all the laws, uh, uh, or even appoint uh, all the heads of the uh, institutions which should serve as the institutions of checks and balances in a democracy. And the other such constraint is the divided executive power, which is characterized by a directly uh, elected president and government elected or appointed by the parliament. These two institutional constraints make it Practically impossible that patronal democracy could evolve into a patronal autocracy, but the attempt that they try, the the ruling patronal network try to expand its power and its uh, authority. It creates such a way and position movement on the other side, and there. This uh, uh, autocratization process at the end reaches democratization opposition movement, but the democratization opposition movement is supported by rival oligarchic structures or rival. Patron client networks, which means that when there are these so-called orange revolutions in the case of in the case of Ukraine, after Kuchmo and uh, after Yanukovych later, there is a democratization process uh, in the level of political sphere or political institutions. But this democratization process is not accompanied by anti patronal transformation. So the new executive power also has special types to different types of patron client networks, and this gives a very interesting cyclic character of this move. So what we uh, with Barin saw when we investigated post-communist regimes that this cyclical character within the patronal democracies hampered a development of these countries towards liberal democracies, but at the same time hampered the development towards, towards uh, patronal autocracies.
1: So this theoretical framework of patronalism, of patronal democracy, patronal autocracy and regime cycles, this is pretty much what lays the foundations for this book. And this is beyond the fact that we try to involve several Ukrainian authors. The other thing that uh, I I should say makes these two volumes unique is that we try to adhere to a strict strict conceptual coherence. And we we try to, well, the authors will tell us that we try to, well, we ask them, to to use this framework and to stay within this framework and try to apply it and use especially the ideas of patronalism and the idea uh, or the framework of uh, patronal democracy to the case to the case of Ukraine and analyze how the war might change this situation so how these regime cycles are affected by the war and how and is it possible that After the war, Ukraine might break out of these cycles, this cyclical movement, and maybe move toward another kind of regime, preferably liberal democracy. Here is where I turn to our authors. First, I would like to ask Mikhail Minakov, who wrote in the the first volume on Ukraine's patronal democracy, and he wrote on Zelensky and wrote on the oligarchs and de-oligarchization. So my first question is this. How can we interpret Zelensky's pre-war governance, so before the war, in the context of patronal politics?
4: Well, indeed, when we use the methodological or conceptual approach with the use of the terms like patronalism, patronal democracy, autocracy... We describe Ukraine as this republic based on paternal democracy, or republic of clans, if you wish. Since the end of 90s, when the clans or adopted political families came together, they may they lived through several cycles, from basically 1993-94, first deep and very troublesome year period of political crisis that would lead to orange revolution and another from orange another cycle from orange revolution to euromaidan and after euromaidan the new cycle started which ends pretty soon so just in 5 years of, after the rule of uh, president poroshenko with unusual or unpredictable I- event of appearing zelensky zelensky is a figure uh, that comes into power by fighting oligarchs, representing a group of young, strange, unusual politicians, activists, who were not connected to uh, any clan. Even though there were many rumors, suspicions that uh, Zelensky comes from the clan, or the Dnipropetrovsk clan of the Privat group, that was basically not true Right now, when we discuss this issue, one of the owners of the privat group is in the court giving statements to the court, and he's investigated or or in the court because he is accusing corruption. And there there is no problem with the Zelensky administration who is doing this. So, in would there be any connection the suspect that was suspected four years ago, this wouldn't be the case. So Zelensky comes as a a champion of uh, Ukrainian hopes that we can actually stop with all those self-undermining cycles of the patronal democracy. Zelensky is voted and supported by rich and poor, by Eastern Ukrainians, Western Ukrainians, those who live in cities or in rural areas. So he's really a, a person around which there was some strange, unusual consensus created. Ukrainians are are a vibrant society with many different ideologies and groups, and we rarely organize ourselves around someone or some movement with more than 70%. Last time it was basically referendum on independence. So in in, in a way, that that was an electoral revolution. There are political scholars who called it. And when Zelensky comes to power, he immediately tries to change political system uh, with many different, again, unusual initiatives and supported by unusual power structure. He brought in power also one-party majority in the Rada. None of the presidents ever enjoyed that kind of support in Rada, this stable one-party rule. And uh, this provided, well, it seemed that it provides him and his administration, his team, with an opportunity to end with oligarchs. However, already after several months in especially in winter 2019-20, you can literally see how these multiple scandals are directed against Zelensky or major figures of his administration. So uh, public scandals supported by oligarchic media started ruining the major capital of Zelensky, his rating. Around March 2020, in the wake of a pandemic, he meets with oligarchs and it looks like he created a certain pact on non-conflicts or not starting the conflicts, which existed for some time until the next big pre-war period when Zelensky reinvents the Council of Security and starts using it as a tool uh, against oligarchic clans. So you basically see how de-oligarchization goes on but it does not go hand in hand with the fight of paternal politics. And that's a, a new situation, quite unusual situation for post-Soviet time. But before the war, de starts, and some of these policies actually survived the start of the war.
1: And now, if you just look at the news, and uh, especially if you read this volume, it would seem that the war would accelerate this process. So for Zelensky, who gains popularity and who presents the war as a national issue and uh, tries to involve various groups of society, he gets such uh, support and especially such political power with the state transforming, going into war mode, then that uh, that, uh, he can use in his Anti-patronal agenda, or at least anti-oligarchic agenda, as you as you explained it. So, can you tell us a bit about how Zelensky uses the war, or rather, how he uses this opportunity to go on with this, to go on with this agenda?
4: Well, first of all, the oligarchization survived the crisis connected to the beginning of the war. The oligarchization policy, in the conditions of the war, and with functioning anti-corruption system is indeed destroying the established oligarchic clans in Ukraine. This means that many uh, adopted political families and relevant patronal pyramids will cease to exist. We already see how military actions against major industries belonging to the clans and anti-oligarchic policies together undermine measurable presence of oligarchs and their uh, members of the clans in, ex- in the executive and in the parliament. But the question is, will the destruction of this multi-pyramidal oligarchy means the end of the patronal politics? Currently, one can see how uh, multi-pyramidal patronal politics is nearing its bitter end in Ukraine, which means that the country's political development is at the moment of fatal choice between further construction of public politics based on the rule of law and basically what we call liberal democracy, or the transition towards a single pyramid patronal political system that was happening with Russia in early 2000s. So the ongoing war against Russia may be a decisive factor in making this choice. This pattern may be tempting for Zelensky's team in current conditions of war with the centralization of power, full control over mass media right now, the discipline of martial law, discipline society. Well, here we may see that we accept single pyramidal logic in exchange for victory and fast economic recovery. However, Ukraine and its ruling group are in a much different situation than Russia in 2002-2007. In the war against the aggressive Russia, Ukraine stands together with Western democracies, with a rule of law based European Union, which provides us with necessary resources to fight. And this support may critically decrease chances for Ukraine to opt for non-democratic choice.
1: Thank you. We will we will return to to the EU and its, its influence in a, in a second, but first of all uh, but before that I would like to stay in Ukraine. So far we have talked about the elites and the elite structures and Zelensky and how uh, his fight with the oligarchs is going on. But now uh, I would like to turn a little bit uh, to how this looks in a bottom-up perspective, how this looks from the side of Ukrainian society, especially because and I'm now turning to Oksana Hus uh, who also wrote in the first volume this Ukraine's patronal democracy and the Russian invasion volume. And she described, as Shira, uh, in the title of her chapter, a uh, change in the social contract in Ukraine already after Euromaidan. So, Oksana, what do you mean by this change of social contract in the context of anti-corruption policies?
2: Well, basically what uh, Balin described initially and what uh, Mikhail uh, described now about the influence of oligarchs on the political system That was, that used to be the rule in Ukrainian politics. So, politics, they are always responsive to what comes as a demand towards the political system. And then the political system delivers public goods if the demand comes from the society. But if the oligarchs are posing this demand, then the outcome of the political system is a very different one, because the whole machine is working towards generating the income for the groups of interest. And that used to be the business as usual in Ukraine, that politics were captured by this influence of the oligarchs. Until basically 2014, when uh, the revolution of dignity uh, or euro revolution took place. What changed after there? It's not that oligarchs got less influence, but that additional groups they also got to define politics, and especially, I mean, civil society. And another qualitative change, that this influence of civil society was not only reduced to the elections, but it was directly on the decision-making process. And after the Euromaidan revolution, civil society got this strategic role, and it was different than in 2004, because uh, civil society evolved and learned so 2014, over 120 organizations, they came together into a reanimation package of reforms that was an umbrella organization, and they defined which reforms need to take, need, need to be implemented in the country. They also defined the ways how to bring about these reforms, and they evaluated these reforms. So that was quite important strategic role. It wasn't like chaotic organizations uh, bringing here and there some ideas up, but they really had this mechanism and the way how to push for a qualitative change on the stage of decision-making. So we are not speaking about the elections, but decision-making. And this resulted in a couple of important reforms, uh, and anti-corruption reform was one of those. But also decentralization reform, for example, was an outcome of this process. And decentralization reform brought also citizens closer to the state. So all in all, this change in the social contract means that the society gets the ownership of the state. And they also learned how to exercise this influence towards the politics. And that might be very common in liberal democracies or something like, I don't know, so what, (laughs) the question. But for the post-Soviet country, just think about it. Like You have 70 years of pressure that citizens do not have to engage in politics. And if someone engages, then those are punished. And then it affects education, it affects political culture, it affects everything. And after 70 years of this regime, you have a qualitatively new situation where society finally learned and actually took this initiative and senses the state ownership to shape and to pose the demand toward the political system and controlling also politics. So that's what I mean uh, with the change of the social contract.
1: We, in this volume about Ukraine, really try to be comprehensive. And therefore, we describe political system, economic system, and society as well. And actually, there are two chapters in there. One is about beyond Oksana's chapter. There are two chapters. One is by Chila Fedinets on the civil volunteer movement in Ukraine and how it helps in the war efforts, but already before that with the internally displaced people. And there is uh, another chapter by, uh, by a team of Ukrainian authors who wrote about the change of the uh, national identity. Of the Ukrainian people, and to describe in sociological terms how fragmented this identity was, what problems there were before the war, and of course, now there are still problems, but how this whole landscape is changing and how uh, patronal identity or, or how patronalism is becoming less and less important and the national civic identity is being developed. But Oksana, you also write about some. NGOs and some of the initiatives like Prozoro and other initiatives from the side of society, which seem to be very effective and unique. Also, after Euromaidan. After you write about the, the mushrooming of various organizations and anti-corruption organizations from the side of civil society uh, in Ukraine. So can you tell us a few examples, perhaps the, you know, most, the most successful examples that, uh, that, uh, that are there uh, in Ukraine?
2: Well, you mentioned already Prozoro system. This is one of the leading systems even worldwide that provides uh, transparent public procurement. So this is a digital platform where the state can buy things or order some services from the private sector. And there is the data about all these transactions. So what the state is buying, but also about those who are supplying to avoid the situation that, for example, some politicians who own companies or are beneficiary owners uh, owners of the companies that they are also like providing the services and in the same time requiring those services. So that is a conflict of interest or the politicians are those who benefit. So, so to prohibit these uh, forms of corruption, this platform, it provides uh, radical transparency. And another, maybe even more interesting point about ProZoro is that it doesn't only provide the data, But Transparency International, who actually as a civil society organization, developed this platform that is also quite unique, because usually these platforms, they are developed by the state. In Ukraine, it was a civil society organization that developed together with the businesses and gave this platform into usage of the state. So now this is a state-owned enterprise that manages the platform. So another point that is unique about it, that it doesn't only provide the data, but also the way how this data is used and interpreted. And this is the Dos community. So Transparency International trained the activists in the regions who kind of see the red flags and can analyze how corruption in public procurement is adjusting. Because this is also, corruption is quite creative activity that is adjusting to uh, different situations. So this community monitors and it works together with AI, with artificial intelligence that in the machine learning process learns where are the signals for corruption or those red flags. And in fact, in this communication, AI activists in the regions back and forth the data that Prozoro provides is also used and interpreted and helps in the investigations. So this is a really nice uh, example of engaging civil society, but also using of uh, technologies.
1: Now, if, uh, if I start moving towards the second volume, which uh, is on Russia's imperial endeavor and the geopolitical consequences, actually it contains a comparative analysis of Russia and Ukraine's ways of war. And that is written by Hungarian expert András Ratz. And uh, just to uh, encapsulize his, uh, or just to summarize his thought, he says that Ukraine and the main difference between Russia and Ukraine's ways of war is that Russia's way of war is an, a socially exclusive way, while Ukraine's is a socially inclusive way. And it, while Putin interprets the war and frames the war as a special military operation and uh, doesn't involve society in such a way, Ukraine and, and Zelensky frames it as a national issue and tries to involve various groups of society. And I think that uh, what just, what Oksana just told us is also uh, an example, and uh, of course we could go on with examples, of how Ukrainian civil society is being activized already before the war and during the war as well, and uh, how various groups are now transforming and how these corrupt patronal structures are being de-developed, as uh, Mikhail also explained to us, and how the political-economic system of Ukraine changes. However, Mikhail also mentioned another actor who is the external actor, the EU. And uh, now I'm turning to Kama Mijay, who wrote into the second volume on Ukraine and Moldova and uh, on these two countries' uh, accession to the EU. And my question to Kaman is that now that, EU, uh, now that Ukraine is an EU-candidate country, it has to go through an accession procedure and there are some reform requirements uh, from the side of the EU and there are various entry requirements which Ukraine has to, has to face. What do you say? What are the main pitfalls? that the EU should avoid based on the experience of previous countries and previous accessions, especially of post-communist countries. So what the EU should change? Why is the current EU approach inappropriate for for the case of Ukraine?
0: Thank you very much for this excellent question, which indeed I try to elaborate on in the uh, volume. Before Answering it and identifying three large areas for this. Let me just make two introductory comments to to this integrational issue. First, I am very happy that Ukraine and, by the way, both Ukraine and Moldova on the side of Ukraine have gotten the candidate status, regardless of the war. I would always think that for these European countries, the right incentive is to to give them the European Union uh, membership perspective, but then be very, very hard-headed in assessing the implementation of the conditions for them. And, of course, helping it, and uh, I will turn to that uh, later. The other that I want to say as a introductory remark that sometimes people, and obviously, understandably also in the Ukrainian leadership, leadership, mix up a little bit things. The main security provider is and should be NATO in this region, and I am very much in favor of a robust, accelerated process, also with conditionalities, but with slightly less and perhaps less uh, troubling conditionalities than in the European Union. You know, after all, Turkey is member of the NATO without the perfect... Uh, Uh, rule of law and democracy credentials. I'm not saying that Ukraine should be invited with such uh, performance, but Ukraine is performing already much better, as uh, Oksana and Mikhail have explained. So NATO membership should be a priority, and uh, particularly the United States, but also the Europeans, should not be afraid of Russian reactions. So that's important because the EU is primarily not a a security club. Of course, it does contribute to security, but the primary contributor is NATO. The EU is primarily a rule of law club. Of course, geography and and many other things matter, but uh, it's a rule of law club. And here I I am starting directly answering your questions, Balin. First, the EU has had a tendency of saying to the firing countries, look, here is the acquis communautaire, the legal framework of the European Union, extremely voluminous and ambitious, adopt it, and then we talk. Now, what is critically different in Ukraine and Moldova relative to the previous countries, and there it was already an issue, is the role of the law and the role of informality in the life of society. Adopting laws doesn't yet mean that much, to, to put it a bit uh, simplistically. Therefore, the uh, the European Union needs to appreciate this, uh, this issue and needs to work with the countries, Ukraine and Moldova, to really achieve a deep alignment with the European Union, a deep alignment with the rule of law culture, that is, the reforms really cannot stop at legislation at all. Legislation is really just the start, and and that is really very important. I also would like here at this point to have a a side remark, which which I find extremely important, and that is uh, connecting my talk to Oksana's field of interest, and that is anti-corruption. When I was uh, working as a EU official, in Ukraine, and having about 100 professionals, half of them are on the rule of law areas, internationals, I had a very strong view, which was a minority view, and I'm very convinced about uh, its uh, relevance, that anti-corruption action doesn't stop at persecuting corrupt people. The popular perception is that you have to put uh, the, the thieves in, in prison. Yes, you have to. But... It doesn't stop there. So it's extremely important to also work out positive incentives, of which I will mention two here for the sake of brevity. That is to reward officials and uh, the representatives of the rule of law sector, judges, uh, prosecutors, and and so on, so that the incentive to steal is less. These are countries where even like Ukraine, the justice sector works in a mafia way. So it's, it's really important to, um, to, to address uh, this issue. And the other is uh, deregulation. So you have less regulatory opportunity for theft, you have less theft. So deregulation, which in Georgia after the uh, Rose Revolution was very radically implemented, is a very important uh, vehicle here. So that is very important for the the other issue is prioritization. The EU has a tendency of, if you are a candidate, country, there are 27 or 28 chapters of the communautaire. let Let's negotiate. The task here is much more formidable than this. You have to have a strategy of what are the priorities that will trigger systemic change. And that is something that, uh, that uh, the EU needs to still inhale because the EU understandably, is a big bureaucratic machinery, and uh, everybody's department is relevant and important, and they don't want to be seen less relevant. And anyway, who is in the European Union who says, this is a priority, that is not a priority. But we have to do it, and we have to do it with the the involvement of Ukrainian civil society in the case of Ukraine. Oksana mash- mentioned the reanimation package of reforms. Broadly speaking, the people in that uh, in that uh, crowd have gained an enormous experience with change management and what works, what doesn't work, and you have to uh, have to use that. The European Union needs to do it in a contemplative way, and then to uh, to develop uh, the strategy. And thirdly. Another tendency of the European Union that needs rethink is they assume that in the moment of a country wants to join the European Union, it's almost ready. Now, in, in the case of Ukraine and Moldova, it's very far from there. It's right that they start the negotiations. It has to be a long process. The process itself has to facilitate change. And therefore, the local context, be it tax policy, be it many, many other things, has to be taken into account. It's not enough to say you adopt the uh, EU legislation and that's it. No, there are a lot of things that in the way have to have a transitional character and have to be different. And of course, again, the EU needs to acquired the necessary skills to know which uh, areas need uh, transitional regulation and which not. Again, uh, people who have gone through the reforms since 2014 have gained an uh, enormous stock of knowledge that needs to be used. So this partnership with the civil society in Ukraine, but not in a slogan way, those who are really competent and can uh, uh, contribute to this, is, but it's vital. Because they are the only ones who know it
1: so I think if i want to want to get the the essence of what you're saying, if I understand you correctly, is that your suggestions are showing into our into a direction that how EU should become an agent or a facilitator of anti-patronal transformation so how it should first understand what go, what is going on in Ukraine get this authentic understanding with the involvement of local experts but then it also has to adjust its own its own uh, uh, methods so that uh, and its own uh, uh, ownership criteria how to, to deal with or how to tackle those issues, which are the real issues and the most important issues. Actually, with these volumes, with Balint Major, we, we, we had the desire, and luckily with our authors, we, we could achieve this, that we, we all use this framework of patronalism and patronal democracy so that we can really focus on the real issue. We can really focus on why Ukraine was not a liberal democracy, but how, so what the problems are. And when we are assessing various agents, be they Zelensky and the government, as Mikhail explained, be it civil society, as Oksana explained, or be it the external actor from the side of the EU, as Kaman explained, how they contribute. Or how they can contribute to anti-patronal transformation. So, this is our main agenda, our main idea within Ukraine, and how we try to explain Ukraine throughout these many, many chapters. Of course, now we don't have time to go through all of them. And also, we have the second volume, which discusses where Karaman also contributed, which discusses what changes in Russia, how the Russian system moves from an archetype of patronal autocracy into a more dictatorial way, and how it moves out of informality to semi-formal uh, structures and how the formal structures are becoming stronger there. There is a chapter about ideology. There are also chapters on uh, the reaction of international actors, not just the EU, as Kaman explained, but there are chapters on the reactions of central European countries. There are the reactions of Russia's neighbors, the post-Soviet neighbors, Belarus, Kazakhstan, and Azerbaijan. And there is also a chapter on China and how China reacts to this whole situation. So we really try to be comprehensive on this side as well. If the first volume was comprehensive in the sense that it covered Ukrainian system and Ukrainian politics, economy, and society, and trying to uh, understand them in a joint way, as Balint explained, because these spheres of social action are not separated and patronalism is there, and how all these are shaken by the war and how they are changing. These are the structural consequences. Then, in the second volume, we also try to be comprehensive and try to look at the structural consequences for Russia and for the geopolitical order. Now, I would like to turn, and now as we are reaching the end of the podcast, I would like to turn for uh, for a final round to Balint uh, to Balint Major, because actually this is uh, not his first project, when he had to work with uh, with a team of international experts. For me, it was my it was my first project, especially. In the sense that we had a theoretical framework and we tried to apply it to various, to the case of Ukraine and through various topics in the works of various contributors. But for Balint, as he said, as he explained in the beginning, he first developed his idea of the mafia state for Hungary and then he had to apply it for post communist countries or expand the model. The post-communist countries. And to that end, he organized a volume, which was also published by Central European University Press, and that is Stubborn Structures. So what I would like to ask from Balint is, what is your experience? You always work. Now we also, as I said, work with mainly Ukrainian authors, or the major, there is a predominance of Ukrainian scholars with local knowledge. You also, when you wrote or uh, had uh, contributors from Eastern European countries, and post-Soviet region. So what is your experience? How do they engage with this framework? Do they accept this patronalism framework as much as our colleagues here do for Ukraine? And uh, how much, uh, so what I'm getting at is how comfortable it is to them as opposed to the mainstream framework. So what was their reaction?
3: I am really grateful to all of the authors for their contribution to these volumes. First, um, after 2010, I started to deal with the uh, Hungarian regime and the autocratization process. And I know that uh, for any kind of change in these regimes, uh, you need an authentic language. My first book uh, about the Hungarian post-communist mafia state was published in Hungarian and then in English, and later in Polish, Bulgarian, and Russian as well. And uh, my experience was that, in spite of the fact that it was written about Hungary, those who had some feedback about it uh, in these countries, they thought, okay, you wrote about Hungary, but the descriptive language, what you used, on this language, you can tell our story as well. And this is the most important thing, because if we stuck into the mainstream language, as I mentioned before, which concentrates... Only using the dictionary for the description of liberal democracies, then you can reveal just deviances with these regimes concerning these regimes. This is something like as if you go to a zoo and you stand in front of an elephant and you say that it's an illiberal fish. Okay, it says that why it's not a fish, an elephant, but uh, does not say too much about that uh, how an elephant look like and why it uh, what is his basic uh, basic uh, features. So then, when this language and model was for in the next volume of the stable structures for for other post-communist regimes, uh, then we could feel that uh, it is operable for other countries as well. And now I have to tell that uh, that this experience uh, was the same in the case of Ukraine. Uh, and therefore, these two volumes they not just cover different topics related to Ukraine, but giving a comprehensive language organically ties together these different topics uh, in these two in these two volumes. So therefore, I feel very comfortable in this project and uh, and I think that it's a very successful project.
1: I would like to thank everybody who contributed for everyone to come. And, and I, I would like to thank our listeners to, to have joined to this podcast. Uh, let me just repeat that the books are open access and they are freely downloadable, uh, both volumes all of the chapters. There are 26 chapters in total. Also, there are prefaces in the first volume by Henry Hale, in the second volume by Kirill Rogov, and all of this can be read for free from the website of Central European University Press. And uh, thank you uh, for listening to us, and thank you very much for your interest. Thank you, Kama, Oksana, Mikhail, and Barin for coming and uh, for joining
3: us today.